Hello and welcome to another episode of the UNSW Economic Society's Equilibrium podcast. In this episode, our publications team speak to PwC Economics and Policy Associate Thomas Cooley about what it's like to work as an economist and the current economic climate in Australia. So sit back, relax and enjoy. This is going to be a treat. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. How's, how's the day going for you? It's going pretty well. Um, very, uh, I'm working on a couple of interesting projects at the moment. So uh, time flies when you're having fun, as I say. Yeah. So uh, you're just preparing a few different things for that. Um, you know, when you when you work full time, these weeks just roll into to months and months roll into years. So uh, it's the nature of the beast sometimes. Sometimes I wish you had more than 24 hours in a day. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so... You know, maybe you want to start off by telling the, telling us a bit about yourself and like maybe your journey towards PwC. Yep. Um, so I'm an economist, a um, couple of years out of university, um, completed my degree at the University of Sydney, um, just a straight economics degree. And I've since completed some postgraduate work um, at the University of Sydney also in public policy. So um, I suppose it links well, well with my role as an economics and policy consultant here in the um infrastructure economics team at PwC. Uh, in terms of where my journey started to get to PwC, I actually um, got involved with the Economic Society of Australia back in 2020. Um, and I partook in a competition called the Annual Policy Hackathon. So effectively, um, there was this brief uh, allocated to a group of three or four um, team members and you were given a, a sort of a topic, uh, mine was reskilling and upskilling the workforce and you had to design a policy brief around it, sort of cost it out um, and develop a, a three-page policy brief as to what that would look like. Um, the, our group's policy made the the final, uh, I think the sh- final shortlist um, and made it through there and the chief economist uh, and the partner that I currently work under, Jeremy Thorpe, um, he was one of the judges on it. Oh, um, so I sort of got introduced to him through in there and uh, the sort of engaged with him after that and sent a list of jobs through and applied for this one called the Economics and Policy Consultant, sort of at an associate level. So just sort of like similar to a grad level um, and managed to go through the process of that and ended up uh, in the infrastructure economics team here at PwC. So suppose like your traditional route to sort of just like applying online, that was a nice sort of roundabout way of going about it. But um yeah, that that's that in motion the, the process of landing here at PwC. Oh, very cool, very cool. So, you so how how were you involved with the Australian Economic Society? So, like in in what capacity? So that was just that you can be a member of the Economic Society of Australia. I think it's forty dollars. Um, so it's just an arbitrary fee to join. Oh, okay, okay. She's the CEO of Grattan and a whole bunch of other leading economists are involved in it. I suppose it provides a, an outlet if you've done an economics degree or if you just have a general interest in economics to uh, engage with like-minded people and discuss policy issues and uh, economic policy. Um, yeah. And they have this uh, they had this policy thing for lockdown in 2020. And uh, I uh, obviously went into it with a whole bunch of other young Australians Um and yeah, that, that's sort of the process that went about from there. So they do a whole bunch of stuff. They do stuff on cost benefit analysis. Um, they do stuff on, you know, just general events as well. And I think they're starting to get more in-person stuff up and going now that um, 
the pandemic or certainly out of the acute phase of the pandemic as we sort of transition to whatever the, the new normal is. Yeah, very cool. I know like a lot of our viewers will like, like good to know. I'm sure that like there's a lot of interest in that within our viewership. Mm. Um, and before we get into like just like the economics questions, just maybe we'd ask you like um, about PwC's cultural framework and like any interesting projects going on now or that you've worked on in the past. Yeah, well, I think at the heart of sort of what PwC goes in terms of their mantra, it's it's about trying to build trust within society. That's broadly right across the, across the firm. But, you know, there's, there's certainly values of sort of integrity, act with care, teamwork that, that are at the heart of what PwC's framework is about. Um, and certainly the work that we do um, in the infrastructure economics team, a lot of it is obviously government related. So, you know, business cases for certain investments, um, there's also the private sector element to it as well. I've worked on some macroeconomic projects for um, a few banks, as well as also, also some um, more nuanced infrastructure analysis work and value creation work. So I do really work on a, on a rich and, and broad range of, of projects. I was just looking the other day, sort of been over sort of here for well, nearly 18 months now, um, just shy of 18 months. And I've worked on over 10 projects and they really are varied across sort of what an economist comes across, you know, from those macroeconomic roles I told told you with the banks yeah. to sort of more traditional sort of cost-benefit analysis work for social infrastructure, especially for myself, but uh, other team members have worked on transport infrastructure, health infrastructure. Um, so really a dynamic set of policy pieces across the board. So it is really interesting work. I think uh, there is a value to be put on meaningful work uh, in today's economy. And I'm fortunate enough to have a role that I really enjoy and really sort of get up every day and uh, look forward to coming to. Yeah, yeah, you can really tell. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, have a, I have a question for you, uh, Tom. So um, we recently talked to the RBA and something that um, well, we recently had them on podcast. What we, what they noticed, or at least have been starting to notice, is there's been a substantial like uh, regression in terms of the amount of students enrolling in economics degrees as well as doing economics in high school. So, um, building on that, I, I was just wondering why you chose economics as a degree because obviously all of us have our own different reasons. But um, hearing everyone's reasons is always always an interesting chat. Well, I suppose it was a, um, a few different things. Um, mm. my, my cousin studied economics um, back in the sort of mid to, mid 2000s. I always looked up to him as a bit of a mentor. So mm. we often discuss it, the similar sort of topics around the, the economy. I've always been interested in, in employment and wages numbers. I, I, again, I'm not sure what it was that stoked that interest when I was young, but I always mm. found it interesting in what other people do mm. um, and sort of the, the economy. And there's, different, oh, there's all different arms of the, you know, how you study economics, but yeah. so, you know, understanding industry, and you know, understanding job creation and, and how it's fostered um, is part of that. So I always thought that was interesting. Funnily enough, I didn't actually do economics in year 11 and 12. Mm. Um, I, I sort of did, I did business studies and, and a few other um, units. And I didn't think you know economics would be the path at that point in time. But when it came to choosing the university subject and doing a bit of sort of a, a deeper dive, um, you know, I, I thought economics was was the path and mm. certainly glad that I chose it. Um, mm. And especially as you get into sort of your second and third years and um, some more specialised um, topic selection where you can sort of go into your senior units and really go the paths that you want to go. Um, I thought that was great. And 
you know, hence why I chose a, a career in economics. And I think also one thing as well is people would often do an economics degree. They see themselves as probably ending up in business or, or finance along that. They don't probably think that, you know, doing economics yeah. directly leads to an economic job, you know, like in relation to how many people work at the RBA or how yeah, many people yeah. work in a role like this at a, at a big four or another mid-tier mm-hmm. consulting. Um, like I've got plenty of friends who, that I made through my economics degree and a lot of them are working in finance and mm-hmm. I'm probably one of the, in the minority there in terms of people who are working in, in a direct job that's related to economics so i just think it's yeah mapping out that pathway and understanding it and just having a general interest in public policy you're not everyone's going to be a you know a macroeconomist or you know someone who's great across the numbers but there is a role for political economists there's there's different roles to play across in terms of in terms of what an economics career can lead so i think that's important in terms of establishing a pathway between school Mm. university and and a career Mm. well it's it's quite comforting knowing that like the path is different for everyone. And, you know, like uh, you can see that the amount of people actually end up in a role ex- that explicitly has economics in the title. So yeah, it's just, it seems like the economics degree is all around just a good launch pad for getting into anything business. But at the same time, you also have commerce degrees these days, but I don't know. I've always found economics a bit more interesting and nuanced because it's like you said, it connects everything and anything together. And it's just really satisfying that as soon as you understand a relationship between, between like one thing in the economy and another, it's just like, it's like a new world has opened up. You know, you see something you never saw before. Yeah. Absolutely. I will keep yeah. You said that you did a postgraduate uh, degree as well. Was that research or was it like course-based? Well, I started off doing a master's in public policy, um, but then so when I got the role here at PwC, I decided to just downgrade, downgrade that to a graduate certificate. I sort of wanted to sort of focus on my career for a few years. I obviously have the intention to go back and potentially do um, complete the master's in public policy or even you know go to economics. Um, we'll see how we go. But um, yeah, I just thought it was important to get a, a deeper framework understanding of public policy because the, the way in which you make economic policy directly interacts with how public policy is made. And I, I did that um, with the University of Sydney. Uh, a, a grad cert just completed that at the back end of 2021. Um, so did a variety of things there, sort of looked at global economy um, through one of my units. Also public sector ethics and corruption, which was a bit of a, a different uh, lens. But I think given how topical uh, an integrity commission is at the moment, um, you know, I think that was a really good topic to choose. And then some more broader policy analysis work that certainly helps in terms of framing economic policy and being able to communicate it. I think it's one thing to understand economics, but I also think it's one thing another like an even better thing to be able to communicate economic ideas in a simple way i think the best economists in australia and across the world are able to do that they're the ones you see on sort of tv and be able to you know draw metaphors and similes to everyday life and understanding you know or you know what does this number mean in terms of my wage or what does this number mean in terms of my mortgage and those sort of things so i think um yeah being an economic communicator that public policy um aspect really helped me but again there's multiple pathways you can go you can do political economy you know you can do straight economics you can do econometrics so um you know there's all these different pathways that you can pursue and i definitely think uh you know the more the more knowledge you acquire um the better yeah it sounds like your like um educational background like really prepared you well for a role for the role and like a lot of a lot of like our viewers will take a lot of um reassurance in that um so, like, moving on to the, like, economics questions, um, like, moving away from the career-based questions. Uh, so, like, now we're moving into a time of, like, a lot of global turmoil. And we've seen that, you know, Australians, Australia has had, like, a surprising rise in inflation. What do you think is the biggest factor in the rising inflation we've seen in Australia? 
Is it like the global supply chains, petrol and commodity prices, or mass government spending? Well, so I think it's think? probably probably a combination of all those three but you know in terms of what's driven it the most obviously petrol prices i think are up about 22 percent on on pre-pandemic levels um and certainly they've increased significantly in the in, the, in um, q1 2022 um i do think it is broad-based but you know there is what those one-off uh, increases in commodity prices the impact of the russia ukraine on, on oil prices certainly played a role and you see that coming through with the bowser and um, you only have to see what the sort of the, the federal government, one of their signature initiatives at the at budget time was, you know, halving of the fuel excise um, to try and give some relief to people at the Bowser. I suppose it's one of those items as well that you recognise, right? You don't often think about when you go to gro get the groceries, you don't think about each individual item. You think about it as an aggregate cost, whereas obviously you go to the Bowser and you, you know, you do compare Bowser as you drive past, you know, one's the $1.95, the other one's two six. You know, so you, people do think about that. So that's certainly one aspect. And obviously a lot of people work in transport. So, you know, for, for drivers and, you know, logistical workers, you know, and for companies, you know, like um, big big freight companies, they would experience this cost. You know, it's one of the biggest input costs into their business. So that's certainly played a role. But I think it also, you need to understand that the sort of prices increase a broad base. Like if you look at some of the metrics from, the CPI in, in Q1, you know, the, I think 91 of the 106 goods, the basket of goods actually saw an increase. And I think 37 saw an increase of, of over 2%, um, of over 2%. And another one of those key costs were construction costs. You often hear anecdotally that, you know, um, sort of prices are going up in terms of goods being sourced uh, for building material, you know, building projects getting delayed. Um, you know, you can't find a builder um, as well. That's supply shortage on the, on the, on the the labour side, or at least a skills mismatch there. Um, so yeah, the, those two things, um, housing construction costs and commodity prices, especially oil, um, I think are directly feeding into it, but there is an underlying element of a broad-based broad price increase across yeah. even you actually look at the CPI and what comprises it. Yeah, for sure. Do you think, do you think that in that it's very broad-based, do you think that's sort of an indicator that it's um, artificial and maybe like sort of a little bit transitory. It's like especially coming out of the lockdown and the surge in like I guess um, consumption and like want for consumption, while supply chains and you know industry is still taking some time to get like back to full steam. So and what do you think like the long run you know outlook for inflation is in the current environment? Well, I certainly think um, again you just broke up a little bit there, but I think I got the gist of your question. I certainly think. Um, consumption plays a big part of it. I mean, consumption, household consumption makes up 60% of the total economy. And you've got, I think households say that $250 billion across, you know, across, you know, the pandemic, obviously experienced a lot of lockdown, you wouldn't spend it traditionally on what you would ordinarily spend it on. So I do think there is a the lag there that that sort of money comes out. I think in the budget, they estimated household consumption growth to grow by 5.75% this year. So that's certainly going to play a role in driving, um, prices and, and driving demand um so i think that's part of that's that's certainly part of it um and as that sort of natural drawdown comes you know you might see more a correction over the longer term to that two to three percent margin that the uh, rba sets for itself in its mandate but then in terms of the long-run impacts again i suppose you know all of us here we probably weren't born when the last time inflation was a was a genuine significant issue and if you do your economics research you obviously go back to the 1970s where there was sort of that traditional wage price spiral now 
this is a bit different. As I said, I think it's just more supply focused rather than sort of demand driven. There is obviously, as I said, that consumption element to it. But we look at wages. Wages are only growing at 2.4%. Actually, one of the biggest things is that gap between real wages and inflation and plugging that gap and, and trying to get wages up to a comparable level where that it doesn't add to inflation, but it actually drives, you know, so people aren't going backwards. So that's certainly part of it. Um, in terms of what I think it does, if you do a comparison to the 1970s, I think the greatest probably um, level of comparison would be that we saw in the 1970s a redu reducing of tariffs on on foreign products. And one of those things was you know, inefficient cars. So cars that were made here, they sort of became second rate to cars made in Japan, for example. And we saw that now. Interesting that, 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 that I bring that up because we are sort of wanting to make a transition to electric vehicles. Um, so does that make, does that mean, you know, the cost of oil and the cost of petrol and, and you know, the, the cost of running a car, does that mean the transition to electric vehicles will be faster? I think that's a really interesting um, aspect of, of this one. But yeah, certainly, I mean, in the 1970s, the last time when unemployment was below, Four percent. I think the wages are growing by about twenty-seven percent. So um, the huge, huge difference there. Um, so we're not in a wage price spiral, and I do think that um, there is room for for wages to grow that won't add to inflation, because especially if you're targeting minimum wage um, at, the, at the bottom end there. So I do think there there are some differences. As I said, the key one is that you know what does that mean in terms of EV policy um, and driving that? You know, does it mean that you know a greater share of you know the, well, that drive down the price of, of EVs as more competition comes in the market as well. So um, that's certainly one thing. Um, maybe, again, going back to the increase in construction costs as well, um, domestic sovereignty in our supply chains. Obviously, we, we are a very um, import-rich sort of economy when it comes to importing materials. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, had, had, you know, manufacturing has been, you know, have gone from being an economy that produces things to an economy that services things. You know, and we produce services. So what does that mean in terms of sovereignty, you know, in supply chain and shoring up supply chains? A lot of businesses have been focusing on that, especially big business over the last 12, 18 months with supply chain disruptions. How do we shore up that? Does that mean more local manufacturing content? Does it mean more advanced manufacturing? Um, so, you know, th those are two of the key questions in relation to manufacturing and also, um, you know, for motorists as well in terms of the balance between your current situation and e moving to an EV. Yeah, with yeah. um, with I guess a, a change in government, a change in rates, and overall just like media attention or media paying attention to uh, changing inflation rates. Do you think maybe uh, people's concern is a bit overstated? I guess um, considering that some of this stuff, well, a lot of it, um, as I think you're saying, is a bit out of our control in that it's supply chain orientated. Do you think maybe uh, there's a bit maybe too much saber rattling from the media? Well, the, the media always love to, to hype yeah. things up, you know, and that's part yeah. of the discussion. But I, I think it ultimately depends on where you sit on the income ladder. I think oh. if you're in the top sort of top two thirds of, of income earners, um, you know, you've been relatively well positioned during the pandemic, you know, you, you, so those, those savings are sort of filtered through to you. You know, you've got probably, you know, there's a record number of people with, you know, an increased buffer on their on their mortgage, on their offset account. But then if you're in the bottom third of income earners, that's where the real wage, you know, disparity hits, you know, mm -hmm. that's where, you know, sort of low, low income workers, minimum wage workers, that gap really gets exacerbated there. So again, I think it depends largely on where you sit. Some mm -hmm. people are well, well accommodated to, to feel, to 
um, to absorb that price, the price increases. But I think, you know, especially if you're on that sort of bottom third of the income chain, you might be, you, you'll be doing it tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, maybe a bit political, um, but do you think that had an impact on the election at all? Well, I definitely, I definitely think yeah. cost of living. I mean, you know, obviously things like climate change and mm-hmm. um, integrity commission, all, all those sort of things yeah. play a role, but always almost number one on the, on the agenda in terms of what's an election issue is cost of living. Yeah, um, You know, people getting by, getting by every day. And I definitely think, especially the last few weeks when it, there was a lot of discussion about wages mm-hmm. um, and, you know, supporting a minimum wage increase against, against NOI and, you know, what's a reasonable wage increase that certainly mm-hmm. played a role. So um, I definitely think that played a role uh, amongst other factors as well. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's, it's very, uh, I guess, uh, interesting to hear it from an actual economist. Um, seeing like economics play a real, will have a real time impact on politics as we see it. And especially with this election, it's been very interesting in seeing how everyone votes with, um, you know, various like blue ribbon seats just vanishing overnight, et cetera. The advent of a lot of independence. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how uh, the current economic uh, state we find ourselves in is influencing politics. Um, anyway, uh, Anthony? Yeah, actually, I wanted to go back to, um the house the um, construction costs increasing which is i guess like not a small not like maybe not even not a small but a large factor in the 5.1 figure we've seen for cpi um it's although it's been recorded at around eight percent for this year over the last five years it's 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 gone up 25 percent. so do you think it's we're just now noticing a longer term problem or do you think this is just part of the course of a really strong construction industry in Australia and it's not something for concern. I think it's it's probably somewhere in the middle there, right? I think um, you know, like in terms of a, you know, it's probably the the impact there is that, you know this combination of you know sourcing materials from overseas as well as a combination of of supply skill shortages. I mean, you know, we are going through a massive infrastructure boom in terms of what's being delivered delivered at a federal or state level. You know, there's a huge pipeline. Can't remember the exact figure, but I know it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars of what's going to be delivered over the next 10 years as well. So there's a huge demand for, um, you know, construction services and that places pressure, you know, and construction companies do have a, don't, don't have really, they have much more, much of a margin in terms of what they operate at. So I think, you know, there's a, it's a combination of those factors and without being an expert, a construction economist, so to speak, just on a, super, on a, on a high level, you know, I think, you know, those factors have been building for a while and, and certainly have been exacerbated over the last sort of 18 months to two years. But yeah, definitely, you know, it's, there's no one single solution to it. It's a, it's a whole of economy approach. It's, um, you know, you know, where does the domestic manufacturing aspect come into it? You know, where does um, sort of the, the, the fiscal position of, of these um, construction companies fit into it, as well as, you know, this large infrastructure bill that's been delivered um, at, a, at a federal and a state level? Um, I think all those things play a role. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so... You talked about, we talked about a little bit earlier about um, so ri- rising like uh, minimum wage or just rising wages generally could actually play to reduce inflation. In, in, is that right? Is that? Well, not, not necessarily play to reduce inflation, but plug the gap. So the, the sort of minimum wage workers and low workers and sort of more broadly, people weren't going backwards in terms of what their income you know, can buy in the economy. Oh, yeah, that makes, that makes more sense. Um, yeah. yeah. Like beyond the inevitable raising of interest rates, 
which are on track to 2.5% by 2023. What do you think like are the best like course of action for the government to combat to combat the present inflationary pressures? And like how do you think that matches up with the um new incumbents policy like ambitions? Sure, sure. So I think in relation, to, it's good, you've got to understand in relation to what the new government's coming into. They're, they're, you know, what is it? I think it's a trillion dollars in debt, or roughly around a trillion dollars of it. So it's about forty-four percent of total GDP. Um, you know, you've got in, in, in an environment where the RBA has signalled further interest rates, as, as you said, um, and you've got you know wages stagnating as compared to the level of inflation. So yeah, it's understanding understanding that and not putting fuel on the fire, so to speak. So to, again, I, I think it goes to an issue of quality of spend and not the quantity of spend. I think in this past budget, people will talk about, I think things like um, the $250 one-off thing for pensioners is really good because, you know, that's targeting, again, that bottom chain aspect of the income chain, you know, and that's money they're probably going to go and spend. That would really help them in their in their back pocket. But again, speaking of transport economists, the fuel excise um, cut, you know, was probably a temporary thing, but probably not the most sustainable way to go about driving down costs. And as you can see, petrol is already back on the increase, similar to what it was levels before. Now, obviously, the fuel excise cut helps that. But, you know, when that comes off in September, does that is that just going to mean that they skyrocket again? These are interesting questions. I'm not saying I have all the answers to them, but um, it's got to be uh, productivity inducing investments that the government makes it's yes, so quality of spend so one clear aspect in relation to linking it back to the incumbent government is child care spend so the relation effectively making universal child care i think it, their policy is about driving about 96 percent of um uh, for i think 90 96 percent of households um effectively universal um child care is what they was is what they're driving so that that's a that's a productivity enriching thing on multiple aspects it's female participation in the workforce so at the moment um there's you know large disincentives because often the female is a second income earner in the household so they work work a fourth or fifth day in the week their effective tax rate is much higher and so there's a disincentive there to work so the economy is losing out on that fourth or fifth day of work and for them going so this would help reduce that burden as well as well as obviously reducing the cost of childcare. and the third sort of aspect is you get better educational outcomes for children so it's a no-brainer Grant Institute's done some work there. I think they said for every dollar you invest, you get $2 back. So that's what we're talking about when we say sort of bang for buck. Other things like um, investing in the energy transmission grid, as we make this transition, a key bottleneck is uh, energy transmission infrastructure. So, you know, there's, I think the, then they've got the powering um, Australia policy. I haven't looked too much into it, but I know there's a designated aspect to unlock sort of private investment in um, infrastructure as well as obviously some government commitment is there as well um housing affordability was obviously a big one at the election it's probably what drove some labor voters to voting green especially younger voters um so there's things around that like having again the best way to design that but like a, there's been a lot of talk about a housing australia future fund whereby they plug a certain amount of money into that and that sort of drives social and affordable housing and there's a there's a clear shortage of of um sort of affordable rental housing across the country, especially even places like WA, Queensland, South Australia, they've experienced strong increases in rents, um, probably more so than Sydney or Melbourne uh, throughout the pandemic because they've had less of a lockdown experience. But, you know, that that's the issue across the board, um, housing. Um, and then there's... Um, other areas as well in relation to health reform and yeah so I, I think it's it's a productivity the overall message is productivity across the board how do we get productivity productivity will get will drive wages growing as well it's the only sustainable way to really grow wages in a fashion that doesn't exacerbate inflation i know 
Stephen Kennedy, who's a uh, Treasury Secretary, said um, in a recent um, budget estimates hearing, he said that it effectively re reached full employment, which we're probably getting to soon, um, as we dropped below 4%. Um, a 1% increase in productivity would mean wages could go by 4%. Without anything, any, any adding anything to inflation. Same with a 0.5% increase in, in productivity would mean wages could go at 3% without adding any adding anything to inflation. So um, any productivity inducing measure, as well as obviously trying to reduce and get quality of spend and, and, and integrity in the spend and bang for, bang for buck um, is important. And that's a wrap on part one of our chat with PwC. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Many thanks to our guest, Thomas Pooley, for joining us. Stay tuned for part two, which will further explore the future of the Australian economy.